Morning, Sherman Street. We have made it to Exodus, book two of the Bible. We're on our way. Uh, if you're all caught up in the reading, then you should know already that this section of the Bible is violent. Um, sorry about that. That means the video is also violent, but faithful to the text. Um, it's also a bit scary. So, you know, PG. Um, this is a really important uh, part of the Old Testament. The Exodus, Israel's rescue from slavery, is one of the central parts of their history, and you will hear it come up again and again and again throughout the rest of Scripture, either directly referenced or as a theme that flows through it. Uh, we used to have one professor in seminary who would say, if you do not know your Old Testament, you don't know the New Testament either. Uh, that's ex especially true for the Exodus. Um, so you can pay close attention, do your reading, and here's the video. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. 
It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great. But the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. Hi, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to look at the design and message of each individual book and how it fits into the overall storyline of the whole Bible. We also make videos that take one theme and trace it through the entire storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. Hey, we want you to meet some of the artists who are working on these videos. We're a nonprofit and we'd love your help. We're always making a new video. You could go to jointhebibleproject.com and give a few bucks or become a monthly member and help us finish the entire project. You can download high resolution versions of these videos or other study guides that go with them all for free at jointhebibleproject.com. We are talking about a really well-known text this morning. Moses encounters God in the burning bush and is called to stand up to Pharaoh uh, on behalf of all of the Israelites. God essentially calls Moses to protest injustice and promises to go with him in it. The story is so well known partially because it has this really mysterious allure to it. It's one of those places where God shows up in a very real way and still manages to be elusive or enigmatic. That's one of the frustrating things about our faith. God doesn't seem that concerned about answering all of our questions. And that makes the Bible a pretty frustrating book if that's all you're looking for. For the better part of the Bible, God is revealed to us through story. And that can teach us a lot of things about who God is and who we are and how to live well in this world. But it also draws out a lot of questions. It makes room for a lot of interpretation. And But one of the things that story does really well is it invites us in. We are invited into a story in a way that we are not invited into, say, an instruction manual. And so these texts become much more relational and much more transformative. 
much more so than they are just purely informative. We can wiggle around in these texts, feel them push up against us, challenge, confuse, and comfort us. We can shift our weight and change our footing and figure out how exactly we fit into them. Because God chooses to reveal God's self in story, the text is alive in a different way. And again, that brings up lots of questions. And that's okay. Good even. And sometimes sitting with questions turns out to be more important than any of the answers that we can come up with. And the text today gives us several of those kinds of questions, and I'm sure you can come up with your own. But as we go through the story, I'm going to tell you what comes up for me. As chapter three starts, Moses is tending sheep, which seems like such a quiet kind of life. But there has been a lot to bring Moses to this place, and I wonder how he thinks about all of it. He was born in the middle of a genocide, and while many boys his age were murdered, he lived. He was born a slave, and though his people are still captive, he's free. He grew up in the palace of the empire that murdered his people, likely benefited from their enslavement being raised by Pharaoh's own daughter. And he was aware of the wrong that was being done, and he tried to stand up against it, murdering an Egyptian guard who was beating up an Israelite. But it didn't help. And even with his resistance, he still ended up being rejected by the Israelites. I can only imagine the loneliness that Moses must have felt as he fled to Egypt, a fugitive without a people. But in the desert, he finds a wife, and he has a son, and he tends flocks. Maybe he's happy with his life. But it's clear that he still thinks about his past. He names his son Gershom, which means foreigner there, because he says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. I wonder if he wonders whether he's more Egyptian or Israelite. I wonder if he wonders where home is. And I wonder if he feels the weight of the injustice that's happening against his people while also being done by his people. But without, he just doesn't know what to do in it. I wonder if any of that was on his mind as he walked past the burning bush. Now, I don't like to idealize the patriarchs. They are um, never consistently heroic and their heroism is uh, generally not the point of the story. But one thing that Moses has going for him is that his life is slow enough that he can pay attention. Now, I don't know if it's character or circumstance, but he has the time and the inclination to go to look at a curious sight when he sees it. And in this case, at least, that's what it takes to meet God. He has the time to attend to his questions. Why doesn't that bush burn up? He has enough space in himself to notice and check it out. And that seems like such a small thing, but when I am racing through my to-do list, I don't notice much at all. My head is in the list. When I'm going from appointment to appointment, I don't have time to stop. And more and more, our lives are that way, not always because we're always busy, but because there is always something to turn our attention to. Always something to... Um, to take in. Uh, I remember hearing this story about these uh, seminary students 
who were participating in a study, they were told that they had to memorize the parable of the Good Samaritans and then run to the other end of campus. And, uh, and when they got to this other place, they had to recite as much of it as they could remember from their uh, memorization. Um, what they didn't know is that in the middle, they had planted um, somebody laying on the road hurt. Uh, and the students, so the students had to like run right past them as they, uh, as they went to recite the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is about religious people passing by um, somebody who's hurt on the road. And guess what? Not one of them stopped. One student actually like leaped over the hurt person in order to get past him faster. It's kind of painfully revealing, isn't it? Um, you just can't attend to people or to God when you are always in a hurry, when you've always got other things on your mind. That's why silence and solitude have always been such important spiritual disciplines, because it takes time to listen to God. It takes time to attend to ourselves and discover what the Spirit might be stirring in us. It takes some extra margin to be able to go over and to see a strange sight that just might be the presence of God. We need these disciplines now more than ever. So many industries vie for our attention, doing everything they can to keep us addicted to their show, their game, their feed, their articles. Advertising brings big money and grabbing and keeping our attention is what puts that money in the bank. We need these disciplines more than ever because sometimes God might be showing up for us, but we haven't stopped to look around. We haven't taken the time to consult our own curiosities. Verse four has always kind of blown my mind. It says this, when God saw that Moses had gone over to look, he called to him. When he saw, he called to him. It seems like God only called because Moses went over there. Like, what would this story have been if Moses hadn't looked? I don't know. But I think this is one of those questions where thinking about it is more important than any answer you might come up with. We don't know if God would have called out anyways, or if God would have let Moses just go by and called someone else. Or maybe the exodus wouldn't have happened at all. We don't know. But thinking about it shapes us and challenges us. It's one of those curiosity that curiosities that may not carry the answers we're looking for, but it may bring us to encounter God. In any event, God calls Moses and instructs him to take off his shoes because the ground on which he stands is holy. Is it holy because God is there in the bush? Or was it already holy before that? And why is the right response to holiness to take off your shoes? You know, Americans um, usually keep their shoes on in their houses, but Canadians like me and um, lots of other cultures take off their shoes whenever they come through their front door. One commentator suggested that Maybe Moses had to take off his shoes because there, in the presence of God, Moses had finally found his home. Now, I'm not sure if it's because I come from a culture where you take off your shoes at your house, but for me, taking off my shoes feels like settling in. Maybe that's the reason. 
Maybe it's a way of being present to holiness. You can't leave quickly or carelessly. You're really in it when your shoes are off. I don't know. But with his shoes off, Moses meets the God of his ancestors and hears about the anguish of his own people and that this fiery God has heard their cries. God says, I'm sending you. In response, Moses asks a question that the text doesn't dwell on at all. Who am I to do this, he says. Moses hid his face from God at first, but now he seems to have found enough confidence to start pushing back. God does not answer Moses' question, and Moses gives up quickly on getting it answered. But what's strange about it is that there are lots of good reasons why Moses is good for this job. He's an Israelite. He longs for justice for his people. He was raised in the palace. He knows the customs there. He may even know Pharaoh. But despite being, uh, but despite there being a good answer for it, God does not answer the question of who am I to do this? God instead says, I will be with you. And Moses' question, question shifts from who am I to then, well, who are you? What can I call you? And take notice here, God does not meet his question with a fury of indignance. Instead, at Moses' question, God reveals God's self even further, giving his name, just because Moses asked. What does that mean for the rest of all of our questions? Moses will push back on God's plan at least five times in this exchange. And the amazing thing is that God does not insist that Moses be quiet and do what he's told. God bends his plans to suit Moses, giving him signs so that the Israelites will believe him, and then giving, even giving him Aaron as a, as a mouthpiece when he says he can't possibly do it. In all this interaction with the Almighty, Moses is not quieted or coerced or overpowered. Moses actually seems to become more comfortable as the exchange goes on. He moves from, you know, hiding his face to being bold enough at the end to say, please just send somebody else. Here again, one of those questions that's worth thinking about. What does it mean that the almighty alternative what does it mean that the almighty, eternal, all-knowing God changes the plans for us? So many questions. And God answers Moses' question about his name, but then it's quite an answer. Um, I am who I am. This is what you are say to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Like, we've heard that so many times that sometimes we don't even stop to think about how strange it is. My name is I am who I am. The Hebrew in that is actually quite hard to understand. Um, God gives a name that is actually the form. It's, sorry, it's actually the, whew, some form of the word to be twice. Um it could be translated, I am who I am, or it could be translated, I will be who I will be. Someone suggested that it could mean, 
I am the one who causes things to pass. What does it mean that God gives God's self a name that is some version of the verb to be? But just like the burning bush that doesn't burn, this is a mystery that pulls us toward itself rather than driving us away. We are invited into the mystery. We are called into it and invited, our, invited to take off our shoes as we attend to it. I mean, how could we explain the glory of God? How can we contain the eternal in time and space? How do we put the one who spoke all of creation into existence, into the language of that creation? It's okay that we don't get it all, all the time. We can't. It's appropriate that we can't, but we press in. I often come back to St. Ignatius's quote, God is always greater than our conception of him. And prayer is one of those mysteries that brings out all sorts of questions. But recently I read this um, quote that said, prayer is another word for your relationship with God. Prayer is just another word for your relationship with God. That felt so helpful for me. Like, I don't really know how prayer works. I don't know why sometimes I get clear answers and sometimes it seems like God is silent. I don't know why some people are healed and others aren't. But I am invited into an encounter with the divine. And the little tastes that I have had have been enough that even with these questions, I press in. That's not to say that our faith is all haze and confusion. It's not all mystery. But I think most of the time, the only real certainty that we get in this life is God's self. Friedrich Buechner has this great quote saying, you know, if you go to God to look for answers, you may or may not come away with what you're looking for. But if you go to God looking for God's self, you will always come away satisfied. The burning bush that doesn't burn and the strange name, they may be mysterious, but the moment is clearly intimate and personal. God is giving God's self. Moses encounters God, even if he may not be able to explain all the nuances of it. And this passage is just the beginning of the revelation. Our God is one who longs to bring us back to the love we were made for to bring us back to ourselves, all by bringing us back to God. In this passage, God takes on a name, but that revelation will continue all through the scriptures, right up until the point where God takes on flesh. And then when God falls on each and every believer in yet another display of fire. One commentator said that, I am that I am could well be translated, I am what I will be, as in, I am constant, I will not change, I am faithful, I am what I will be. Still working to liberate captives, still working to set this broken world right, still inviting us into that work, 
like Moses, still making a way to restore relationship with us, the God of the burning bush is also the God of the cross, who is also the God of Pentecost, now bringing justice and mercy in and through the faithful obedience of believers. And that is the certainty that we can count on. We don't always get answers, but we always get the person of Christ who meets us in our distress, bringing healing, comfort, conviction, taking all of our brokenness on himself. We get the Holy Spirit who calls us to the work of restoring the world, who strengthens us to do it and who teaches us to love and to pray, who reminds us of the promise that one day all things will be set right when this revelation is finally completely full. And we can hold that promise. You know, we can accept it or push against it like Moses. And either way, know that our God, who is always greater than our conception of him, can hold that, can still use us, will still welcome us in, will still make all things new. Please pray with me. God of the burning bush and the pillar of fire and the smoke on the mountaintop and the voices of the prophets and the songs of the psalmists. Of the voice from the heavens and the dove descending and of Jesus himself. Lord, you reveal yourself to us in so many different ways. Lord, reveal yourself to us now. As we read your word, as we go through our days, as we stop to pray, to attend to your spirit, Lord, may we notice when you are near. May we turn aside to attend to you. Lord, may we hear your voice and accept your call. And when things seem mysterious and scary and overwhelming, may we stay in your presence through all of that wrestling it out, coming to trust in your promise. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>